in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, there are a couple of genealogies that are the lineage of Jesus Christ. The one in Matthew in particular gives us basically the, the lineage starting from Adam all the way through to uh, Jesus. And um, Luke gives us in reverse the same kind of genealogy, although it is a different one. And the implication is in that that those two genealogies are uh, actually that of Mary for one and Joseph for the other. But in Matthew's Gospel, it's interesting, he started again out with Adam and he gets to through Isaac uh, to uh, uh, Israel and uh, then Israel, of course, has his 12 sons and it kind of picks up from that point and focuses on uh, Judah, which is the fifth son of Israel. And it tells us that Judah begat Perez. And it's interesting that the woman that he was with at the time that Perez was born was his, actually his daughter-in-law. And she tricked him into uh, having a relationship with her because her husband, his son, had died and he didn't want to give the next in line to her. So he persuaded, uh, she persuaded Judah to have a relationship with her that resulted in the birth of Perez. So it's a little bit of infidelity going on there in the lineage of Jesus, but it gets even more intense than that. After Perez came Hezron. And then we're told Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begot Abinadab. Then Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon. And Salmon was married to a woman named Rahab. Rahab is going to be the focus of our study here tonight. Take note of the fact, though, that she's the first in the lineage that is a Gentile. She was from Jericho, not a part of the Jewish family at all, but entered into the Jewish family. And it tells us very specifically in this passage that we'll be looking at that Rahab was a harlot. Now, of course, you will probably see some translations that indicate that Rahab was an, an innkeeper and not a harlot because they translate the word that we see as harlot in most of our modern translations uh, as an innkeeper instead of harlot to kind of maybe soften the blow a little bit perhaps. Uh, but quite frankly, when you look at the mentions of Rahab in the New Testament, in the Greek language, they use the term for a harlot or prostitute with regard to Rahab. So that's just what she was. She was a Gentile harlot entered into the family of Jesus. You know, you would love to think that the lineage of Jesus should be perfect, but it certainly was not. After she married Salmon, they bore a child named Boaz. And Boaz was a very wealthy man, and he married, not an Israelite, but a Moabitess named Ruth. Another Gentile enters into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And then... Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse, and then Jesse has a son named David. Now David is again 
mentioned as being married to a woman who was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. They committed adultery. So we have Judah sinning against the Lord's commands. We have Salmon and Boaz and now David all entering into a relationship that was not intended to be that which the Jewish men should be participating in. But they did. It's interesting to note that those three women, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel. And here we have the story in chapter 2 of Joshua of this woman named Rahab. And it's a very interesting and profound story that we have here before us. So let's dig in. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, where it says, Now Judah, or rather Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove, or Shittim, to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now it's obvious that they went with the intention of finding out some information about the area with regard to what their people were thinking in regard to the nation of Israel that had encamped on the other side of the Jordan River. They knew that they were going to be entering the land within just a few days. They wanted to assess the situation. And it's very much like what took place 40 years prior to that as the people of Israel were gathered together in the southern part of the then the Negev region of, uh, of Canaan. And they were just outside of the land of Canaan and Moses decided to send in 12 spies in that case to spy out the land. And they went all over the land and came back to report what they found to Moses and his followers there in uh, uh, the place where they were encamped. It's interesting that two of the spies named Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. The other ten gave a negative report. There's giants in the land. We can't take this land. This is an impossibility. They're walled villages. There's no way that we can do this. Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, said, God is with us. He's promised us this land. He will go before us. Well, of course, the people believed the other ten. And for that reason, God condemned them to a wilderness journeying of some 40 years total. That whole first generation would be passed away with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And so now they're ready to enter the land. And Joshua here, instead of sending 12 spies, sends just two. I think that's probably a wise choice. He sends them across the Jordan River, which, by the way, in the springtime, which is a time that they were uh, encamped in the land of Moab, just to the east of the Jordan River, was overflowing its banks. It was a very, very large river at the time. If you go to Israel, if you have been to Israel and you've seen the River Jordan, it's not that much bigger than one of our local streams. It does not have a large flow of water, primarily because they used the water from the Jordan River 
for much of their water supply in the nation of Israel. So the river is much smaller in size than it was in Joshua's day. But they were able to ford that river, the two of them, and they entered into the land of Canaan. And the first encounter with any of the population there was the great city of Jericho. It was a walled city. It was very well protected. And they went in through the gates during the daytime, apparently, and they sought out a place for them to stay. And so they found that this one particular place that belonged to a harlot was available for them to lodge. And so they lodged there. There's no implication of any kind of hanky-panky going on between these men and Rahab or anybody else in her house. She just happened to be an innkeeper, but she happened also to be a harlot. But God used that woman in a remarkable way. And God had prepared her heart in advance. And that's what we're going to see in this passage that we'll be reading tonight. How God did indeed work out every detail that needed to be worked out in order for the people of Israel to have the courage that they could engage in this particular move that God was planning for them to go across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan and Jericho would be the first place that they would attack. Well, as it turns out, they'd lodged there and they apparently had a conversation with Rahab. But it was also commonly known among the king's men. Apparently he had spies throughout the city. The king a city king of Jericho, was told, it says in verse 2, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. So the king has found out, and that's not a good thing. He wants Rahab to turn them over to him. Now, Rahab was a Gentile. She was a citizen of the city of Jericho. She was a well-known citizen of the city of Jericho, primarily because of her status as a harlot, perhaps. But they found out his spies were everywhere, and he sent word to Rahab, we know that he entered into your house, turn them over to us. Well, verse 4 says, Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened, as the gate was being shut when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So we have Rahab defending these two Israelites. Why would she do that? What was on her mind? What was she willing to do for them to allow them to have a place where they could hide out? What was it about that decision that stands out? Well, it's a God thing. It's only because God had prepared her heart for this. There's no other explanation. God had been working on her. And it's something that has been already 
very, very much on her mind. They all knew that the Israelites were encamped across the other side on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. They all knew what God, the Lord, had done for his people. And we'll see that Rahab relates much of that particular aspect of God's provision for his people who had been enslaved in Egypt over 40 years before this. But now she's protecting these two spies because she believes in God. I'd like to just turn quickly to a couple of places in the New Testament to point that very fact out. First, I'd like to take a look with you at Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the faith chapter. It is the uh, hall of faith, if you will, mostly talking about many of the Hebrews who were men and women of faith. Talking about Abraham, talking about David, talking about Isaac, talking about Jacob, talking about all of men and women besides Rahab. But Rahab is mentioned. Verse 31 in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, By faith, the innkeeper Rahab, oops, I'm sorry, the harlot Rahab, translated correctly, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. She believed. It's obvious that that is the case. She did not perish with those who did not believe. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, Rahab had faith to believe in the promises of God to the nation of Israel. She being a Gentile is listed among those who are in this hall of faith. Turn next with me to James, just a little bit to the right, James chapter 2. James also mentions Rahab and talks about the things that she did as justification for her. It tells us in chapter 2 of the book of James, verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So she demonstrated her faith in God, James says, by protecting those spies. So here we have Rahab in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua doing just that. And she's taking a great risk. This is a very, very serious crime if she were to be found out. She was protecting the spies that had come to search out the land. If the king had found out the truth, she would have been killed. No question. But it's interesting to note that Rahab had to tell a little white lie here. It tells us in verse 4, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And then she says further in verse 5, And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. And where they went, I do not know. Perhaps you can quickly find them. Go ahead and search for them. You can overtake them. So she's persuading the king's men to go ahead after these men from Israel having given these men a false report about the fact that she had seen them, but they had gone out of the city and they must be on their way back 
to the Israelite encampment. Absolutely a falsehood. She knew it. She was lying through her teeth. Now you would think, now wait a minute, God doesn't endorse lies, does he? No, he does not. Then why would he allow such a thing? Well, again, if you look through that perfect line of the lineage of Jesus, you would ask that question about almost every one of those that we looked at. Why would he allow such things? He does. He uses such things for his glory. It doesn't make sense sometimes when you look at the things that God allows. Why would he allow Jacob, that heel catcher, that deceiver, to be the one to receive the blessing? Because he loved Jacob and Esau he hated. Simply spoken, it was God's choice. God chooses to overlook, but not so that any one of us could get away with this. I want you to understand another thing. Rahab was a Gentile, and as a Gentile, she was not under the law of Moses. The law had been given to the nation of Israel, and it was certainly, thou shalt not bear false witness, it was a sin for them to bear false witness, to lie. But she didn't know the law. She was outside the law. And Paul tells us that those who were outside the law weren't subject to the law. So you can't condemn Rahab under the law. You can't conclude that her sin should have been judged by the Lord. Any more than you can conclude that Cain should have been killed by the Lord because he killed his brother Abel. The knowledge that we have is what we are judged for. Nothing more, nothing less. But Rahab did indeed lie to the king's men. It was accepted by God and approved by God. And it's in the story. We're not told that God judges her for that lie. We're not told that he condemns her for that in any way. He used it for his glory. So it tells us in verse 6 again that she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Now that tells us that she was also a businesswoman besides being a, an innkeeper, besides her business as a harlot, she also had other income. She was very industrious indeed. And this particular business of flax was a very, very hard, laborious task. But they used the flax after it was heated by the sun and the stalk was split and the fibers would be taken and they would be able to weave garments out of that flax. They would take the flax and they would dye the flax with various colors they had available. And that's important too as we read on further because that flax would be used as a particular kind of cord that would be a signal to the people of God as they enter into the city of Jericho later. But here in verse 7 it says, Then those men, the king's men, pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. They were misled, they were misguided, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate, so no one could escape. So they thought. If they hadn't left the city, there would be no way of escape, except for the fact that, remember, this one thing. 
Rahab's house was on the wall of Jericho. She had a window facing the outside world. Perfect plan of God. Again, every detail, God's perfection is being manifest in this story. The men pursued them by the road to the Jordan. Of course, they wouldn't find them. But then now in verse 8, it tells us before the men laid down on the roof, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know, listen to this, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, she knew him by his name. And whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, all caps, that is the word Yahweh, not spelled out by the Hebrew writers, always mentioned as Adonai, the Lord. He has given you this land. She knew that. She was aware of that. And listen to what she says. Again in verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. The word faint-hearted means our hearts have melted because of you. We know that the Lord has given you this land, and because of that, terror has fallen on all the inhabitants of the land. That is so very, very amazing. She's going to give the reason, but before we get to that, turn now with me to the book of Exodus. I want us to read what was spoken in song by the people of God immediately after they had crossed the Red Sea. Moses taught them a song. It was sung by them. And it's recorded for us in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. Turn there and read with me from verse 14 through 16. Just a short portion of that song. But I want you to take note of what is said in that song as Moses recorded it for the people of Israel immediately after they had crossed the Red Sea. It says in verse 14 of Exodus 15, the people will hear and be afraid. And here he's talking about the people of the land of Canaan. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Take note of what he's saying here. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm, Lord Jesus. <laughs> he didn't know, know it was Jesus, but that's who it was that was leading them. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. What a remarkable word of knowledge that Moses is giving to his people. That won't happen for another 40 years. But now, go back to the book of Joshua and read the following. We've just read in verse 9 that Rahab said, I know the Lord has given you the land and terror has fallen on us and our hearts are melted because of you. Then in verse 10 she says this, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, 
when you came out of Egypt. That had been 40 years before this. She says, we have heard the stories. Everybody in Canaan knew the story of what God had done for the people of Israel as they crossed over the Red Sea so many years before. Can you think of how important this particular statement is that Rahab is making? She's saying that because of what took place over 40 years prior to this, we have been fearful ever since that time. We've been expecting the people of Israel to come into this land. We knew that that was what God, the Lord of Israel, had determined for his people. He had delivered them from slavery and brought them out of the land of Egypt into eventually the land of promise. Though they did not take the land when they should have, the promise stood and God was going to continue to fulfill that promise that he made and the people of Canaan knew it without doubt. The Israelites didn't even know it, but the people of Canaan did. That's remarkable. Not only that, but then she remarks about some other events. She says also, when you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, that also was reason for them to be fearful. That had been a more recent event. That had taken place just prior to their encampment in the land of Moab. They defeated the kings Sihon and Og, who were great kings in that northern region of what is now the northern part of Jordan, part of Syria today. They had overwhelmed them. They took their land. And it was granted to, remember last time in the first chapter of Joshua, we saw that Joshua was reminded by the, the Gadites and the, uh, the uh, descendants of Reuben and also the tribe, half-tribe of Manasseh that they had been promised by Moses that land on the eastern side of the Jordan. That land had belonged to those two kings that are mentioned here by Rahab. They utterly destroyed those two kings, Rahab says. That was recent history. And it was also proof to all the land dwellers in Canaan that the Israelites were indeed going to inhabit the land of Canaan and would be successful in their uh, approach into the land to destroy all the inhabitants. It caused them without a doubt such great fear. And Rahab wasn't the only one who knew this. But Rahab was perhaps the only one in the city of Jericho who believed it, who was willing to accept the fact that these Israelites are going to accomplish that which God had intended for them to accomplish. She was indeed a believer. That's why the book of Hebrews and the book of James gives us all that confidence that she was indeed a believer, a Gentile believer brought into the family of Jesus Christ. Amazing story indeed. It says in verse 11, And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, just reinforcing the fear that had entered the hearts of many. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Remember, God had spent a lot of time telling Joshua, as we saw in chapter 1 last week, be of good courage, be strong, I have overcome them. 
they had lost all courage in Jericho. Joshua was given great courage to proceed. But she says again, Our hearts had melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There were many Canaanite gods, but they were gods of the territory of the Canaanites. They had nothing that they could do to prevent the God of Israel from coming because He was, as she declared, as she well knew, He alone is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. That's remarkable Gentile belief in a God that she had never ever been introduced to but was able to understand by faith as it tells us in the book of Hebrews by faith Rahab received those men and protected them and by faith she was entered into the family of God verse 12 tells us now therefore she says I beg you swear to me by the Lord since I have shown you kindness that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So she's pleading on behalf of her family that they too would be protected as well as her. That's what she is hoping for, that these men will make certain that she and her family will be protected when the Israelites come to destroy the city of Jericho. Neither those two men, nor did Joshua actually know at the time exactly how God was going to do this great work in taking the city of Jericho. This was a walled city. It was very, very well protected. They didn't have a clue how God was going to do that, but they knew that God was going to do that, and so did she. So she's saying, look, I want to make a deal with you. I have protected you. Now I want you to protect me when it comes that day that you take this city. I want me and my household to be spared. That's a grand request. They didn't have to acknowledge this, but they did. It says in verse 14, So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Notice what they just said. Not if the Lord gives us the land, but when the Lord gives us the land. These two spies were confident in the fact that God was going to do what he had promised. Not like the ten who failed to give a good report 40 years before, but like Joshua and Caleb, these men were trusting in the promises of God. When the Lord has given us the land, then we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she said to them, verse 15, or rather, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. So that's how they escaped, through a wall window, on a rope that she let down safely to the ground several feet 
below. I'm reminded Paul was let down in the city of Damascus in a basket in much the same way to protect him from those who wanted to kill him. And these men were protected by Rahab in the same fashion, by letting them out her window and escaping on a rope safely down below to the land. And then they could run not to the Jordan River, but they went instead westward to the mountain area where they hid for a period of time. They let, she let them down the city wall through her window in a rope, on a rope. And then in verse 16 it says, before she let them go, she said to them, go to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and afterward you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into this land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. Whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you have made us swear. Take note of the fact that they're making an agreement here. A covenant has been established between Rahab, a Gentile, and these two Israeli spies. And the covenant ratification is made with one simple strand of scarlet cord. A rope, a red rope, held out by Rahab so that they all could see it from their invasion against the city. That red rope would stand out very clearly. That's Rahab's house. It's on the wall. It's easy to see. They can now be sure that if they see that rope, that is a place that will be spared. When they enter the city, and I'm convinced they probably thought they were going to enter through the gates of the city. But that wasn't God's plan. God had another intent, another way, which we will see later. But they didn't know that. It's interesting to me, and I'm going to spill the beans here, they're going to see the wall completely destroyed by God. The entire wall is going to collapse before they enter the city to defeat it. With one exception. The household of Rahab, that portion of the wall, <laughs> miraculously will remain standing. It will not be touched by the hand of God or by the people of Israel. It's a remarkable story. They didn't know that, though. But that's what this little scarlet cord is all about. It's all about salvation. It's all about redemption. As a matter of fact, you may have heard the expression scarlet cord of redemption. That's where this phrase comes from. This scarlet cord that would be hanging from Rahab's window at the wall would become a type of the redemption of God to all believers. Jew and Gentile. It includes you and I. It's a picture of 
our redemption. That not because of anything we have done, but because a way was provided of salvation that had nothing to do with anything we were responsible for. It had to do with what God would do on our behalf if we would simply believe. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable means of, of redemption, of salvation that is being wrought for Rahab and her family. They didn't know that was God's plan to take the walls down, but they knew it was God's purpose that Rahab would be spared if indeed they would see that scarlet cord hanging out of her window. Well, verse 21 continues and says, Then she said, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. They just simply gave up. They recognized the fact that they weren't going to find them. They probably had already successfully crossed over the Jordan. It was too late, but it really wasn't. They just didn't know that Rahab actually had deceived them and protected those men of Israel. God is in this every step of the way. Finally, in verse 23, we read, So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. Can you imagine that conversation, what it must have been like? I can imagine that Joshua was very surprised indeed at the outcome of their experience. All the things that they had dealt with, the fact that they had met this woman, that she had protected them, that they had promised her a very special promise of protection as they would invade the land. Joshua went along with everything that they had said. But he even, at this time, did not know how that invasion was going to take place. He only knew that they were soon to cross the Jordan River. And he was waiting on the Lord to determine what happens next. And so he says in verse 24, And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Good report, just like the report that Joshua had given 40 years prior to this. Joshua now is the recipient of this great report from these two spies. It's time, Joshua. God is with us. God is in this. God will see it through. His promise is sure. He will be with us, just as he said he would. And there's nothing the Canaanite people can do about it because they are so very, very fearful of us. Let's go, Joshua. Let's do this thing. It's going to happen, just as God intended. It's a remarkable story, friends. A story of redemption. A story of God's using a Gentile woman to help the nation of Israel. They needed this. They needed this very exciting turn of events. They needed this encouragement. Joshua had been told again in chapter 1 and before then in Deuteronomy as we saw last week, be strong and of a good courage. He needed that encouragement. And he got it. He's ready. Now he has to wait upon God to find out exactly how it is that they are going to move into the land. 
They've got a very, very difficult task ahead of them. How are they going to get well over one and a half million, some people believe as many as two and a half million people across this raging river of Jordan? They didn't have boats. They didn't really have any real means of getting across this Jordan. However, they had God on their side. And we'll look at that the next time. So until then, my beloved, grace and peace. And stay tuned. There's more to come. God bless.